morning's uh, gospel reading will come from John 18, reading from verses 1 to 27. That's chapter 18, verse 1 to 27. Hear now God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where, he, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that the Lord, uh, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's uh, the ear of the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who uh, ask those who have heard me what I said to them? They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of, these uh, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, "Is that how you answer the high priest?" Jesus answered him, "If what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me?" Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you, are, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, uh, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, brother, for reading God's word to us. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Darren, one of the pastors here, and I'd love to open up in prayer as we 
uh, look at this portion of scripture this morning. Good and gracious God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you more for giving us yourself. And thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you knew me when I was younger, you would probably be increasingly aware that I can do some fairly stupid things. Um, Now, that wouldn't probably come as a surprise to either many of you. If you've known just any teenage boy growing up, we just do stupid things. It's almost part and parcel. Now, some of the stupid things we do is often preceded by the words, you've got this. (laughs) Often preceded by the words, you've got this. Uh, friends and would encourage you with this phrase and you would think, well, I do have this. I found myself uh, at one such time at a party. Uh, I was there on a ledge, um, the edge of a ledge, and I'd be learning how to do backflips. And so with my ego desperate for attention and the support of the encouragements around me came the line, you've got this. Now, the problem was it was at night. It was quite dark. And um, anyway, I I went up. Uh, I tucked. Uh, I rotated but not quite enough. I came down and um, came down on my left ankle, kind of mostly taking the force of that. My ambition uh, eventually gave way to embarrassment and what would be then 18 months of injury and eventual surgery. You've got this. I did not have this. What about you? Have you heard that line from others? You've got this as a way of encouragement or perhaps you say it to yourself, I've got this. You're facing a challenge. Maybe you're heading to an interview for a new job and you say to yourself, I've got this. Uh, Maybe you are a parent and you're trying to encourage your children to to have courage or confidence as they're entering schooling or just learning how to put their shoe on. You've got this. Um, Maybe you're a parent, especially mothers, and you've encouraged each other in your parenting, saying, you've got this. Uh, Kristen Weatherall, she's a mother of thieves. mother of three, she writes, uh, if you've got this is the belief that I naturally have what it takes to keep my children alive, help them flourish, and even see them come to Christ without completely losing my mind in the process, then I definitely don't have this. (laughs) Not on my own. Not on my own. I think what's true of her observation is actually true of all and for all of us. We actually don't have this at least not in our own. The story before us today is a prime example that Peter doesn't have this either. He fails and falls short. In this passage, I want us to see a power we don't have and the provision we all need, a power we don't have and the provision we all need. And we'll do that by looking at Jesus' power and then we'll look at Peter's problem. So firstly, Jesus' power, we see this begin Verse 1 of chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So John has kind of set us uh, the scene for us by way of introduction. Jesus has finished speaking his words in the upper room towards his disciples, words about his heading to heaven, 
words about their remaining on mission and his uppermost love for them. He's concluded this with a prayer to the Father. And so one can kind of picture the scene change goes from the bright heights and lights of communing with the Father, and then Jesus now steps out into a dark night of betrayal. A betrayal by none other than Judas, one of his disciples. Disciple who knew where Jesus would be. Jesus had a habit of heading to this particular spot, this place. Often he would stay there, um, during, particularly during Passover. It was across the Book Kidron on the east side was the Mount of Olives. It was a steep mountainside, and in the Mount of Olives, there was a garden called Gethsemane. We picture this garden, don't think a, a wide open space. Picture like a walled-in garden, the kind of garden you can enter into, as John records, and you can go out from. So Jesus, who just finished praying that he might glorify the Father through his impending death, steps into that dark night to meet his betrayer and the band of men. You know, it says there's a band of soldiers in verse 3. That band term is a technical term which would have represented about 1,000 troops. It was often also used where they would only deploy between two to 600 troops. And so when we get the picture here, don't, don't think Judas has like four security guards coming to arrest Jesus. Picture Judas with a couple hundred soldiers plus the temple officers and guards. The Roman troops were stationed in Caesarea, often in increased number during the festival, um, during festivals to keep watch of the large crowds. And so We've got the, the, the soldiers, we've got the officers from the temple, kind of the religious police. And you might ask the question, why is such a large group of people coming to capture one unarmed man? Well, on, on one hand, the religious leaders haven't exactly been very good at apprehending Jesus so far. He's managed to evade their capture. And so... You can imagine they want to send a, f- a-, a few numbers. But on the other hand, you-, you notice that it's Judas is the one who's kind of done the legwork to, to get the-, the people here. And so I think if-, if-, if you were Judas and you had seen Jesus' power displayed for the last three years of his life, how many people do you think you would take to come capture him? He saw water turned into wine. He saw waves stop by his voice. He's seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. How many people do you think it would take to come and capture him? Well, in the garden, there's hundreds of soldiers, officers, the social, political, and spiritual forces are coming at you, coming at Jesus. And John records these beautiful words, Jesus came forward. Jesus came forward. Jesus didn't shrink back, but he came forward. He's come to do battle, hasn't he? He's come to do battle in this garden. A garden is no accident. The place where the first battle took place, the Garden of Eden, a battle for truth, a battle for loyalty, a battle for relationship, for Adam and Eve to to resist the serpent's attacks, a battle that Adam failed dramatically. Jesus now stands in another garden facing another onslaught from the enemy, a battle for truth. How will he hold up in this garden? Well, in power, he comes forward. He comes forward in power. He doesn't come forward with ignorance of what the future held for him. But look at verse four. But knowing all that would happen to him, he comes forward. Knowing it all. All the pain, all the shame, 
the mockery, the mistreatment, the mistrial, the whipping, the beating, the bruising, the crown of thorns and the crucifixion. He knew it all and he came forward. Jesus didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. He didn't recoil at this moment. He knew what it would take from him and he came forward. He didn't crumble. He's going to stand in stark contrast to dear Peter shortly, who when asked about his identity, crumbled and shrunk back. Jesus come forward and he has the first word. He says, whom do you seek? Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Notice where Judas is now standing. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, now there's something going on in Jesus' words here that can make a couple hundred hardened soldiers draw back and stumble to the ground. And it's not as some, I think, commentators have suggested that one of them tripped over and it was a domino effect. There's something in Jesus' words, his announcement, I am he, that revealed what one writer called a beam of majesty that broke forth. In Greek, it's only two words, ego, amy. I am, a phrase that carries divine overtones, as John has recorded lots of Jesus' uses of, of this. Back in John 8, 58, 59, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That was enough for the religious leaders to pick up stones to, thro- to try and kill him. It was a phrase used when God revealed him, his name to Moses. Tell them, I am sent you. It was how God the Father disclosed himself in Isaiah 41, 4 who has performed this and done this, calling generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am He. It's the very name of God. The officers say, where is Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus says, God is here. Jesus taking on the name of God for Himself. A ray of glory cuts through. And whilst I think it does fall short of a, of a, a full theophany, that is a, a full revelation, a full manifestation of a divine being, it's, it's certainly enough to clarify who's in power. It, um, it, the scene reminds me of that scene in, in, in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, um, where, where Bilbo Baggins has finished the party, and he, um, it's at the very start of Lord of the Rings, so if you've turned the movie off, you might have seen this scene. Um, he, he, Gandalf is asking back for the ring, Bilbo's going, and but, but Bilbo resists him, doesn't he? He resists, He's, he says, no, you, you, and he starts to accuse Gandalf, he says, you want it for yourself. And listen to how the book records what happens next. It says, Gandalf's eyes flashed. If you say that again, you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. He took a step towards the hobbit, and he seemed to grow tall and menacing. His shadow filled the little room. And Bilbo backed away to the wall, breathing hard, his hand clutching at his pocket. In this moment, the power of Jesus' divinity shines through. They get a glimpse of it, the I am, and it casts the wicked to the ground. Augustine, in his commentary, asks, what will he do when he comes as judge who did this when giving himself up to be judged. What will his power when he comes to reign 
who had this power when he came to die. Can you see Jesus' majesty on display? Can you see Jesus' power? He's in control. He moves towards them. And with such power, what is he doing? He's using this power not to protect himself, to protect his disciples. See that in verse 7? So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. His majesty remains as he tells his captors what to do. His words here are are a foreshadow of the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. It's also a fulfillment, as verse 9 says, of the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Harkening back to, to 17.12 and 6.39 and, and 10.28, Jesus is using his power here to protect his disciples. I, I think Jesus' power here in his words is, is one of the only reasons why Peter isn't locked up. Think about this for a moment. He's going he's gonna to take a swipe at, at a guy's and to, to, to take him out, he, he, he swipes off his ear and, and he doesn't get arrested for such an action? The miracle might have patched up the ear, but I doubt it patched up the relationship. So I think there's something more going on here. What's going on? Well, there's, there's authority in Jesus' words and his captives are obeying him. Their physical Preservation of the disciples are being protected by Jesus. And they're, physical, they're being physically preserved for the sake of spiritual preservation. I don't think these disciples are up for a fight. I don't think these disciples were ready to do hard time. Not yet anyway. Jesus had asked them just to spend time in prayer with him. They fell asleep on multiple occasions. Jesus knows them. And Jesus prays to protect them. Their physical safety here. I think is a symbol of their spiritual eternal security. On reflection on this point alone, I just think it is so merciful for our Savior to be mindful of what his disciples can handle. He knows they're not up for this. Let them go. Jesus is mindful of our weaknesses, isn't he? He knows what we can and cannot handle and where we would crumble if it were not for his sustaining protection over our lives. Well, the, the, the battle is going to go on here, but it would be Jesus' fight now, not theirs. And in this glorious picture of the gospel, they get to go free whilst Jesus gets arrested. Now, this picture of the gospel isn't one that Peter is yet willing to accept, is it? No, Peter's going to literally go down swinging. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Notice the detail for a moment, the right ear. Again, when you're looking at Scripture and you're thinking through, is this a trustworthy source? You just don't make these kind of details up if they're in fact not true. Why does he record the right ear went off? Because the right ear went off. Peter's grand efforts to protect his master, I think here, and protect himself is a colossal failure. John Calvin notes, it was exceedingly thoughtless in Peter to try to prove his faith by the sword while he could not do so by his tongue. Now, I'm not a trained combat fighter, which may or may not surprise you. Um, but, but what I do know, and I, what I've never heard from any kind of training or, or, or 
tactics in battle is, is aim for the ear. <laughs> aim for the ear. So, so, so you think here, what's, what's happened here? Peter's gone for the kill shot and he's missed. He's missed. He's pulled out a little dagger, a little kitchen knife, and, and he's missed. And it, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of pathetic. It's futile. Almost comical, almost embarrassed. There's a, there's a sense to it. Peter doesn't have the power to protect Jesus. What do you think was going to happen next after this shot? One down, 299 to go? Peter doesn't have the power to protect himself or protect his master. The disciples don't have the power to stick around. Jesus comes in to be the power that they do not have. Today we're talking about a power we don't have, and it's a power to save yourself. We simply cannot do it. Now before we think for a moment that we're simply spiritualizing Peter's actions, look at how Jesus corrects him in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has for me? See, see Peter is wanting to lay down his life for Jesus, whilst Jesus is moving towards laying down his life for Peter. This isn't the first time that Peter's rallied against Jesus' plan to lay down his life, is it? You might recall that um, when Jesus asked, who do people say I am? Peter gets the confession right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus starts to instruct the disciples that he must, be su- that he must suffer and be killed. To which Peter then leans in, begins to rebuke Jesus and say, far be it. From you, Lord, not on my watch. To which Jesus replied to him, get behind me, Satan. It's a bad day at the office. He said, Peter, you don't get it. You don't get it. I need to lay down my life for you. I need to lay down my life for you. That's what you need. The sword cannot stop, but only drinking the cup can. That's what this cup was about. The cup in the Old Testament was either a cup of blessing or it was a cup of wrath, a cup of curse cursing. Here, I think the context is clear. It's the cup of wrath. Now, the cup of wrath was reserved for the wicked. Take Psalm 75, 8. For the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. Ezekiel 23, 32 called it a cup of horror and desolation. It's a picture of God's righteous anger being poured out against sin, against wickedness. But now notice who's coming forward to take the cup? Jesus, the Father's Son. Jesus saying, I'll take the cup. I'll receive the wrath. Peter doesn't have this. Jesus is stepping forward and saying, I've got this. I need to do this. Through this cup, Jesus will protect his disciples. Not by the disciples' own power, but by Jesus' provision. In this passage, we're considering the power we don't have and the provision we all need. Friends, Jesus is that provision. The way of deliverance is not by our own might or our own strength or our own ideas, but rather the way of deliverance is in a life being laid down and Jesus will be that life laid down. Our narrative then begins to move from the garden to a courtyard. Look at verse 12. 
So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas has a father-in-law. His father-in-law is named Annas. Um, Annas used to be the high priest. And according to Old Testament law, a high, if you were the high priest, you were in the, you were in the office for life. However, the, the Romans had displaced and made a regular habit of displacing the high priests. So Annas can be referred to as a high priest because he's kind of like the, the godfather of high priests, the true and legitimate high priest, whilst Caiaphas is the high priest that year. So the term is being used twice. He's kind of the head of the family, so it were. Four of his sons had been high priests and now his son-in-law was. And so they kind of go into the, the, who's at the, the top of the line, the, the, the spiritual leader. Let's take, him, let's take this Jesus to him and see what he has to say about Jesus. Well, it's clear what Caiaphas had made of him so far. As John records, he is in remarks in verse 14. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man die, should die for the people. Caiaphas unconsciously prophesying about Jesus' death. Speaking better than he knew. Because before Caiaphas ever planned that one man should die for the sake of the nation, God the Father had ordained that one man should die for the sake of sins. And this is the power of Jesus, to drink the cup of wrath and to lay down his life. See, Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant saying, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, there's this thread of substitution, one person dying for the sake of the many. And it was littered throughout the Old Testament, this idea of substitutionary sacrifice. You've got Abraham, who was to sacrifice his son, and God provides a ram that was caught in a thicket, a substitution. God would provide the Passover lamb, and the blood on the doorpost would what? Spare them and avert the wrath of God. Or look at the Day of Atonement, or, or the, 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 the imagery of the scapegoat. All these pictures are there as this, as this question, can someone else take away the guilt that is mine? Jesus comes in to be that fulfillment. Could one man's death really be sufficient for all people? Yes. Jesus would be that one man who would die for the sake of the nation and for the sake of all God's scattered children throughout the world. See, friends, more than a way out of a fight, we need a way out of sin's condemnation, don't we? We need a way out of sin's condemnation. How else are you going to get out of the pit of sin unless someone else takes the fall? So this is Jesus' power. This is what we see. This is the power that we don't have, and Jesus is the provision that we all need. Now, from one angle, we've seen the limits of Peter's power. Now, from another angle, we're going to see the depths of his failure. We're going to look at the failure of Peter's profession. And we do that by looking at Peter's problem. Look down verse 15 as the story continues. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door. So the other disciple, now just for a moment, this other disciple, whilst it's not explicitly here, most likely John. 
most likely the apostle John, who would have some familiarity with the high priest, which is why he can gain access to this, to this courtyard where this um, kind of initial trial is taking place. He's known to the high priest, he continues reading verse 16. He went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So, so this other disciple has a kind of influence to say, hey, yeah, bring, bring them in, bring them in, bring him in with me. Servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It's here we see Peter's first denial, don't we? The one of three, the first domino to fall. I mean, really, it, it was a small test for Peter, wasn't it? He's simply walking through a gateway, a doorway. And a simple young slave girl asks him in a kind of dismissive, easy-to-get-out answer, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, I think Peter probably could have just said yes. As we said, John's already there, familiar to the high priest, clearly recognized as one of Jesus' disciples. Peter could have probably said yes, but he replies, I am not. Unlike Jesus in the garden, Peter doesn't come forward, but rather he shrinks back. He, Peter, who was never short of a word, now speaks but a few, I am not. He who had been following Jesus at a distance now distances himself from Jesus. Peter, the rock, has crumbled. He's failed. Now, I'm not sure it was ever Peter's plan to go there and to deny Jesus. After all, the other disciples have hightailed it, scattered. Peter's followed along, though at a distance, but he's followed along. Did, did, did he panic? Was he caught off guard? Did he, did he, was he filled with fear of, of what might happen? Did his lack of prayer earlier in the night possibly contribute to where he's at in this moment? He who sought to protect Jesus now seeks to preserve himself. He has a problem. Peter doesn't have this. Jesus didn't flinch. Peter certainly failed. And the scene finishes with Peter standing by the fire warming himself with the officers and the soldiers. I don't know what was going through Peter's mind at that time. I wonder if his experience in that first denial would have been like the experience that maybe we would have at times longing just to prove your loyalty to Jesus, but failing to do it. <laughs> to, to try and be, uh, to faithfully follow him, but, but then often fall short and end up going astray. I wonder if he felt like we did. Lyrics of the song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We've got good intentions to follow Jesus, but when push comes to shove, in that moment, we crumble and we fail. Now, John does something different in this gospel that the other gospel writers don't do. The other gospel writers stick with Peter's denial and they kind of give you denial one, denial two, denial three. John does something different. John gives us Peter's denial and then kind of pans the camera and cuts over to Jesus' trial. Now, I think this is significant, and then he's going to come back to Peter's denial. 
Because I think what John's trying to do with us, if you follow the flow, I think John's trying to give you a contrast of what's happening whilst Peter is denying Jesus, who's standing up for Peter and for truth and who's not caving in? Jesus. I think there's a contrast that John's trying to create here. Peter is denying Jesus. Jesus is standing firm for Peter. You see that Jesus isn't denying anything. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always told in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? All those who have heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. So now listen, Jesus is here. He's been um, brought in and kind of strung up on illegal charges. And really, and, he's, and this whole interrogation is on illegal grounds. Now, that's because in, according to Jewish law, the accused wasn't supposed to be testifying on their own case. They might self-incriminate themselves. What they should have been doing was asking the witnesses bringing the witnesses to bear witness on the, the accused. So Jesus is, in his response, he's, he's kind of leading them through the law book. Why are you asking me? Go and speak to the witnesses. Ask them. My, I'm not denying anything. I'm clear on my teaching. I've always been open. Have a conversation with them. Now, when he says, I have said nothing in secret, that isn't to mean he's never had a private conversation with his disciples. He has. But what he says in private and what he says in public are aligned. He's not giving one message to his disciples, rebel, whilst giving a kind of public, everything's fine. He's been clear. He's not denying anything. Jesus is, is not ashamed of anything he has said. He's been the light of the world in this moment, exposing their misdeeds, their illegal trial. And notice who he's protecting. It's the first question from the high priest was, tell us about your disciples and your teaching. And Jesus just focuses on what? His teaching. He protects the disciples. He's not throwing them under the bus. He isn't kind of rattling off the top few lists they, where they can find them and so arrest them. He's protecting them because not one of them would be lost, not on his watch. He's standing firm, acting on their behalf, not denying anything. Jesus takes not just a verbal assault, but then a physical one as he gets struck in verse 22. His response to the high priest was not appreciated by the officer. And so the strike is like an open palm straight to the face. He went to dishonor the high priest. However, there was nothing wrong in what Jesus had said. Jesus' response is, bear witness about what I said was wrong. And if you can prove it, and if you can't prove what I said was wrong, then why did you strike me? Jesus, once again, what? Being the light of the world revealing. Oh, little did that officer know that he was striking the true high priest. Had ever such a hand been raised against a person with such offense in the history of the world? God's precious creation being used for such perversion. And yet Jesus held firm. He didn't flinch. He didn't back down. He didn't deny he wasn't going to be muscled into submission. He, friends, Jesus is the power that we don't have. <laughs> Jesus is the provision that we all need. You've got Peter's denial and you've got Jesus' faithfulness. You've got Jesus' majesty and you've got Peter's mess. And so now the camera cuts back to Peter. Whilst Jesus is taking a beating for truth, 
Peter is doubling down and continues to deny it. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One can imagine that the questions were now coming from multiple people as the other gospel records. Yeah, yeah, you are one of them, aren't you? You are one of his disciples. Now, Peter had time to, between these, these, um, these questions. He had time to consider. He had time to reconsider. He had time to change his answer, to repent, to reflect, to stand firm, to be the person that he wanted to be, to live out his, I've got this for you, Jesus. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Round two, here we go. You're not one of his people, are you? I am not. I wonder if his second denial was easier for Peter to say. I wonder if it slipped out a little quicker. His eyes on him, he denied. He had another shot, but he failed. I, I can't help but just feel like that's the, that's the kind of case, isn't it, with just self-strength, self-righteous posturing. I've got this. I'll try again, but I fail. I'll try again, but I'll fail. Self-strength, self-preservation, self-protection. Then came the third denial. With the charcoal fire and its dim light, it, it literally wouldn't be blazingly obvious who Peter was. So one of the servant girls, verse 26, of the high priest, sorry, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. See, this guy was in the garden at the time. Not only was he in the garden at the time, he was a relative of the guy who had his ear cut off. And so this guy has particular interest that this is actually Peter. And Peter denies it. And he fails. And that sound of failure, I imagine, carried further than the rooster's crow. And as that rooster crowed, I, I, I wonder what that sound would have reminded Peter of. What sound that would remind us of if we're familiar with the story of Peter. Because back in chapter 13, 36, after Peter claims they lay down his life for Jesus, Jesus replies, will you, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter says, I've got this, Jesus, and I've got you. I'll, wherever you go, I'll follow you. Jesus says, you don't have this, Peter. You don't have the power. You can't keep my name on your lips, let alone my name to the grave. See, Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, I don't need you to lay down your life for me. You need me to lay down my life for you. Friends, this, this is the heart of the gospel right here. The good news of the gospel is not in what you can do for Jesus. It is here in the necessity, the essential work that Jesus must do for you and for me. Peter doesn't have it. He isn't where he thinks he is. He's a sparkler. He's a flash in the pan, bright for a moment, then he's out. And friends, Peter's problem is our problem, isn't it? Peter's problem is our problem. We, we can't defeat sin. We can't save ourselves. We can't overpower the opposition that comes our way. Jesus needs Peter to come to terms with his failure so that Peter can come to terms with his Savior. 
He, like us, needs to be reminded that the way to the Father isn't through our own efforts, but only through the work of Christ. Friends, listen, the, the takeaway message from Peter's denial here is not to don't deny Jesus. And so tomorrow morning when you're in the workplace, you know, you, you, better, you better weave in the fact that you came to church and you better evangelize so don't be a denier like Jesus. No, I think the, the primary lesson here, see Peter's failure. And see your own failure in that. And then see the sufficiency of the Savior. Sit in it for a moment. Consider ways that we might actually deny Jesus. Consider ways that you might deny Jesus. Recall it many of the times that I've had, I've been ashamed of my faith. I've just wanted to change the subject. I got caught off guard. I remember a story a couple of years ago when I was a pastor, a conversation with people out of my depth. I was kind of outnumbered and they asked what I did and I said I pastored at a church and to be honest, I just wanted to deflect back to whatever they were talking about because I didn't want to be in this moment. I shrunk back. I didn't stand firm. Maybe the other way is that we deny Christ not living faithfully in the ways that he's called us to. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He's my Lord. I follow him and do whatever he wants. But if I choose to live my life my own way, we're denying Jesus. And so I think John, in this passage, doesn't want us to move on too quickly from Peter's failure. And so I don't want us to move on too quickly from Peter's failure. See, Peter isn't absolved here, is he? Peter's failure is put on full display, and, and it doesn't, we don't skip over to, to John 21, where Jesus is by the seaside, cooking a little fire with charcoal, the smell reminiscent of the night that Peter denied him. We're not in chapter 21 yet, where Jesus is going to restore Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. We're not in 21 because what you get, you don't, you don't go from failure to being restored without a necessary component of chapter 18, 19, and 20, which is all about the Savior giving his life. We're still in Peter, the crumbling rock. He's still in pieces. And so there's this gap. There's a gap. Who's going to provide for Peter's failure? <laughs> Who, who's going to step in for him? Who's, who won't cave in under the pressure? Who will stand firm to the true revelation of God? Under opposition, is there someone who's going to hold up? Um, will, someone be, will, will someone come forward to, to save? What well, we see the next, over these next couple of weeks, that person is Jesus. Standing firm under trial. Standing firm as he's being handed over. Giving of his life. Jesus will give up his life to protect Peter and he will give up his life to protect his disciples. Jesus here is being led away captive, so friends, that you and I may go free. Jesus here is being bound so that we would not be enslaved anymore. Jesus here is brought before a false court so that we one day could stand in the heavenly courts. Jesus doesn't flinch. He holds up. Peter's action was insufficient, whilst Jesus' death would be sufficient for all his people, for all people who come to him, who plead for his mercy. All people who've failed, people with problems, 
Jesus didn't die to potentially have a people for himself, but to have his actual people, those whom the Father had given him, those who he would not lose one. His death secured it. And so church, the, the first step is from today, I think just recognizing the power we don't have, but that Jesus does, and that Jesus is the provision that we all need, and he provides it. I think if we get this, this, this message today, and if we understand what I think John and Jesus' words and the truth of this passage, I think if we get this, I think we will put our confidence not in ourselves or our performance or our religious zeal or intention or sincerity, but I think we'll put our confidence in Jesus. We'll be a people who won't dismiss our sin but instead head to Jesus with it because he knows what to do with it. Nor will we be a people who end up in despair with our sin because there was one who died to make a way to deal with it. And so when we'll be a people and we will go seek to share the gospel with a coworker, and we won't think to ourselves, I've got this. No, we'll think to ourselves, no, Jesus has got this. And because that Jesus has this, I can trust his word and I can trust the outcome. Jesus has this. He's Lord and Savior over all. When you're fighting against temptation, we're not going to think, I, I, I've got this. No, 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 but, but Jesus has this. Jesus has got you. He'll provide a way out. He'll cover over your sin for the times where you fail. I think if we get this message, we'll be humbled. I think we'll be humbled because we won't walk in pride in the moments where we do succeed. Praise God for faithful living. Amen. Praise God for the day when you, you, you honored him and you didn't deny him. Praise God for that. But no, that's only by his grace. Tomorrow might be different, but his mercies will be sufficient. I think if we get this message, what we'll also do is we'll end up seeking to lay down our lives for Jesus. We'll seek to lay down our lives for Jesus. See, once Peter did come to terms with his failure, once he came to terms with a power that he didn't have, but the provision that Jesus gave him, once he came to terms with that, what did Peter do? Man, he went out blazing. He, he would live his life for the glory of God. And he eventually would end up laying down his life for Jesus. But he first needed to know that it was Jesus who laid down his life for him. That's the movement. That's the order. That's Christianity. You come to a spot where you need Jesus to lay down his life from you. And when you receive the fact that he's laid down his life for you, do you know what Christians then do? Oh, they seek to lay down their life for Jesus. They want to go out in a blaze of glory. But now they've got a power to do it because Jesus provided it with them. As that writer concluded, speaking of mothers, and you've got this, she said, so no, Mom, you don't have this, but since Jesus does, you can take a deep breath. You can receive his prayers, and by his grace, you can persevere in the work he's called you to do until the day he carries you all the way home. So church, no, we don't have this, but Jesus has us. And we have him. And that is the most precious, more precious than anything or any offer or promise we can make for him.
Jesus gives us a power to remain faithful. He provides a way to deal with our sins. So let us lean on him today. Let's pray.